You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the 1970s television show, Six Million Dollar Man, astronaut Steve Austin crashes. A man barely alive. But no matter, they had bionics. We have the technology. Skip ahead to 1998, and Kevin Warwick, a real person, had a computer chip implanted in his body. Making him, they say, the first human machine, cyborg. Well, at the time, no one had actually tried it. So we got the computer to open doors for me, switch on light. But he had that taken out. So he could go a step farther. 100 electrodes, which was fired into my nervous system. And what it was for was linking my nervous system directly into the computer. But is that where it ends? When you try to compare and see what's going on with the increase in processing power of computers, you conclude that at some point in the not-so-distant future, computers are going to be able to be smarter than we are. Better, stronger, faster. When that happens, basically, you have to wonder, is there room for biological intelligence anymore? Or will computers be so much smarter than we are that there's basically no room for biology? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. It's Cyborg's Computers and maybe the end of carbon-based life's dominance on Big Picture Science. But back to Kevin Warwick. This human guinea pig is professor of cybernetics at the University of Reading in the UK. He studies cyborgs, artificial intelligence, and robotics. And considering his willingness to have electrodes placed into his body, you could say he's wired for his job. It was like when you put an electric plug in a socket... This was literally fired in. It was two hours of neurosurgery, and they literally hammered it in, a little uh, little pneumatic hammer to fire it into my nervous system. We could actually pick up neural signals, brain signals, as they traveled down my arm, and, and get them to control the robot hand as well as my own hand, the same signals. Okay. Well, I assume that the reason you put it there is because, indeed, you wanted to investigate whether you could as it were, interface your thoughts about what you're going to do with your hand to some sort of external device and cause some, I don't know, mechanical arm across the room to to grab onto something. Yeah, well, that that was part of it. So for somebody who is paralyzed, who they they still have the signals in their brain, but the signals don't get to their hand because of a, a break in the nervous system, could they use this technology to control a hand or a leg or whatever the problem is. So that was part of what we were doing, but also trying to get the brain signals, the neural signals, literally into the Internet and uh, use the distance that a network provides. So the hand or the arm, for example, doesn't have to be attached to the body. It can, in fact, be on a whole different continent, if you like. So did it work? Could you, you know, play chess at a distance with your arms folded in front of you and have some mechanical hand move the uh, chess pieces around a board, you know, thousands it, of miles? It worked, it worked exceptionally well. Um, I went to Columbia University, New York, and there we put my hand in real time onto the Internet, and I controlled the robot hand back in England, across the internet, not only to move it, but I could also feel how much force the hand was applying on a different continent, you know, in the, in the Europe from the U.S. So it was very successful. You've built robots using brain cells, brain cells from rats, maybe even from people, I don't know. Uh, instead of using digital circuitry, you're using actual brain cells. But 
How do you get those things to work? I can imagine having a bunch of brain cells in a Petri dish, but that doesn't mean they're doing anything very useful. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's tremendously exciting. Yeah, initially, rat neurons. This is taken from rat embryos. Um, we take the brain cells, the neurons, separate them using enzymes. So the enzymes literally make each of the brain cells a separate entity. We put them in, as you described it, a little Petri dish type thing, but it has electrodes on it. So electronic connections. The brain cells literally within 20 minutes or so send out little tentacles to try and connect up with each other. Um, these tentacles become what they call dendrites and axons, the, the name for inputs and outputs to the brain cells. Within a week, there is quite a dense network. It, it is a, a little brain, effectively. And what we've done is connect it up to a robot body. So it, it's a bit like a, a Steve Martin-type brain in a jar, but it's in the little Petri dish, as you say, but it is connected up to a, a physical robot body which can move around. Well, anybody who has programmed a computer, even written simple uh, computer programs, might reasonably ask, I, I know how to program electronics because it's very predictable and I know where the, the ins and outs are, but how do you program a mass of brain cells? Well, it, it is unpredictable. It, it's um, like an animal or human brain. It, it will have tendencies, things that it will do more frequently. And what we've been able to do, connecting it up to a robot body, is to put the robot through a particular sequence. Very simple, very simple things. The robot comes to a wall and we want it to turn right. And it comes to the wall, we get it to turn right. comes to the wall, we get it to turn right. Doing it repetitively, the brain, this is the brain in the dish, gradually, effectively gets programmed. We can see this, the brain, developing particular pathways between the brain cells that strengthen and strengthen and strengthen, so it becomes better at doing it. It sounds like you're programming it the way uh, Pavlov programmed dogs, I suppose. Oh, it, it, yeah, it's, it's exactly that sort of thing. But we can, in this case, we can look at the brain under the microscope, which is fantastic. And uh, the, the sort of questions we're trying to answer are, what are memories? I, I think it's something we don't really know what memories are. Are they in a particular part of the brain? Are they diffuse throughout the brain? And because we don't really know what they are, we have difficulties dealing with things like Alzheimer's disease, which is essentially when somebody can't recall the memories or the memories go, we don't really know what the problem is. So if we can understand really the basics of what's going on in this brain that's in the robot body, then maybe we can start to understand some basics of medical problems like that. I'm speaking with Kevin Warwick, professor of cybernetics at Reading University. Well, I can imagine many listeners are sitting there thinking, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. I like the idea of being able to throw away my laptop, my iPhone, my iPad, <laughs> surf the surf the net without going anywhere, just sitting back in the chair and, and, and surfing. Yeah, uh, why not? Yeah, yeah <laughs> sounds good. But what's the time scale for this? Even assuming it's going to happen, you know, can, can you tell me, is this going to happen in this century or in a decade or what? Oh, I just thought most surely in this century. But, I mean, what we've got are the first basic results at this present time. We've got robots with brain cells from rats, even from human neurons, but robots with biological brains. We've got interfaces that have been successful to allow humans to have an extra sense, to allow humans to communicate in a new way. But these are very, very first pioneering research results probably then takes another decade, so we're looking maybe 2020, before these sort of results are understood much more and widely accepted, and we find some more science that underpins what's actually going on. Right, well, I'd like to look down the road just a bit here, Kevin, because uh, we hear a lot of talk about simply yep. the fact that uh, the machines, the capability of machines, not machines put in us, just machines, uh, yep. of course, is growing exponentially. And, and it isn't going to be too far in the future before we have machines that actually can think. And it sounds as if you're suggesting we need to upgrade ourselves. In order to keep up, we have to become, in a way, cyborgs. 
yeah, we see artificial intelligence, particularly in the military domain, particularly in the financial sector, about to run away with things. The, the possibility of humans losing control of it is, is a realistic one in the relatively near term. So I would feel, well, why have this? Why put humans into that situation? Why not upgrade? If you can't beat them, join them. Let's link up, interface human brain with machine brain and essentially evolve technologically in an intellectual way into the future, hopefully in that way staying in control. So we're kind of in an arms race with machines, not to take that military analogy too far, but that's kind of what it is. Oh, very much so. But essentially, that, that's where it's going. I, I cannot see the human race saying, OK, we're going to stop using computers, we're going to downgrade, we're going to switch off the Internet because it's a dangerous threat. That's not happening. To be honest, we're becoming more and more dependent on it. Um, I, I think in London now, 25 to 30 percent of financial transactions in the city of London are carried out completely automatically. No humans are involved at all. That's wheeling and dealing. It's artificial intelligence purely in control of the situation. Let's get, that's just one example, and it's going more and more in that direction. So let's beat them. Let's join up with that AI, uh, link it into our own brains rather than having acting against us. I want to thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. It's been good fun. Kevin Warwick is a professor of cybernetics at the University of Reading in the UK. Now, in his vision of the future, humans have melded with machines, but they're still in the loop. Santiago Blinkus isn't so sure they will be. He's been a student at the Singularity University, an annual gathering of researchers who consider the future, and in it, they see thinking machines, machines with full-blown synthetic intelligence with no room for biology-based smarts. There's nothing so special about our brains that we cannot replicate in a different media, whether it's by studying the brain or by creating it uh, on a completely different substrate. Okay, so it's going to happen this century? Definitely, much faster than that. Okay, and when you talk about a synthetic intelligence that's equivalent to our brain, I mean, what can it do? Can it teach uh, mathematics at Stanford? Can it, you know, write poetry? What? There's nothing that we can do that artificial intelligence won't. And in fact, it may be able to do a lot of things that we cannot even imagine. Well, all right. So the next question I'd ask is, and this is the one that everyone really wants to know, can I pull the plug? Well, that's the biggest question of them all. I mean, one of the ways to survive may be to become non-biological ourselves. And the key question there is, can we have consciousness continuity? Because if we are going to download ourselves to a non-biological being, we want to really be sure it's us and not just some copy of us. You mean that the machines might let you upload your life experience into a machine, and then, you know, having done that, just it erases it and goes on and does something else? Well, not only upload your experiences, but be you. And that's the key thing. We want to be us in machines. Okay. We talked with Kevin Warwick, who's a professor of cybernetics in the UK, and he's a great advocate of upgrading ourselves. In other words, not to continue to be happy with a brain that, you know, four billion years of evolution has given us, but start augmenting our brain with, you know, circuitry that's implanted in our bodies. Uh, can't this keep up with the artificial intelligence? Can't it keep up with the robots? Well, there is not a conclusive response to that, but my guess is it won't. There's a lot of work being done in how to upgrade ourselves, but if you look at the speed of computers, I mean, right now they're much faster than we are. They're just simply not enough interconnected. But when they get to the point where they can be not only faster, but smarter, biology with our chemical information processing is not going to be able to keep up. So this is just a stopgap measure. Maybe it buys us one more generation of humans running the world? Well, that's about it. I think a generation or two is just about it. That's it. Okay. So uh, what happens? The machines finally trump everything we've got to offer. Do they kill us? Well, that's a big question, and there's a big discussion on, on whether they're going to be nice to us or not. But if we look at what we do with beings that we consider of lesser intelligence, I think we may have a hint. Uh, there's a great question that says, if a much smarter than us alien were to come to Earth, would you grant this alien with the kind of rights that we take over lesser intelligent beings right now? And I think you probably wouldn't. Yeah, well, give me an example of what you really mean. Well, I mean, most humans kill insects without any kind of remorse. 
they are alive. They're just not as smart as we are. I mean, we will kill a cockroach just because it's annoying. And uh, if you have a, a being that is orders of magnitude smarter than we are, why wouldn't that being kill us without remorse? Santiago, I mean, this is obviously a very intriguing uh, scenario because you're picturing a future, which is not very far off. I mean, you know, maybe within the lifetime of people living today in which we've invented our replacements and our successors may not be so interested in us anymore, if, even if they don't kill us. That, that, doesn't this scare you? Absolutely. <laughs> it definitely scares me. But there's no stopping it. Is that the point? Well, I mean, there's no way that we can go against that. And our human curiosity is so big that we're not going to stop ourselves from trying to come up with something smarter than we are. And that's how evolution works. I mean, we're speeding up evolution a lot by the way we're doing things now and, and trickling with biology and electronics. But this is the way evolution works. I mean, Neanderthals have to go away for us to rule the world. Okay. Well, finally, you, of course, spent some time thinking about, well, there might be some benefit to soft, squishy brains as opposed to machine-like brains, uh, so that maybe somewhere in the universe, if not here, biological intelligence will rule. Did you come up with any advantages of soft, squishy brains? Not really. I'm not a biologist myself, and I've been asking biologists, I mean, what do you think is the niche for biology in the long term? What is it that biology can do better than anything else? And I couldn't come with anything. Nothing. Nothing. Well, Santiago Belinkis, I want to thank you for a very upbeat interview. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Santiago Belinkis is a high-tech entrepreneur, and he was a student at the Singularity University. Human Augmentation Throughout History 50,000 B.C. Look, Grog, me put sharp stick on rope and tie to waist. Always have with me for animal hunt. That's so 51,000 B.C., Lork. Me embed sharpened flint rock in my body, here at front of Brow Ridge. Ooh. Easier, faster way to kill big animal. I show. Ow! Coming up, the mad scientists of DARPA and what it takes to build thinking autonomous machines. We've got you made on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. Human augmentation throughout history. 17th century Florence. Mi amore, order me a cappuccino, per favore. I'm busy measuring the orbital periods of these moons of Jupiter. Galileo, must you portare that telescope with you everywhere? Why not just have the glass married to your eyes? A brilliant idea. We'll get to work on it. Can you do a keep that telescope out of the way of the espresso machine? Whoever allowed portable telescopes in this cafe anyway? Oh, scusi. We continue to draw a line between humans and machines, but getting the machines to stay on their side is proving hard to do, as we've been hearing. Machines may one day become a part of us, or we may give them minds of their own. Maybe we should reserve the term minds for a while until we develop robots with true artificial intelligence. So let's go with autonomous, you know, autonomous machines. And at the cutting edge of machinery with smarts, whether they're autonomous or otherwise, is DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Begun by the U.S. Department of Defense as a response to the 1957 launch of Sputnik by the Soviet Union, DARPA's mission was to ensure that there were no more technological surprises. Its job is to stay not one, but many, many steps ahead in innovation. 
DARPA is responsible for developing new technologies for the military, many of which are highly classified, but many of which have civilian and commercial spin-off, such as a little thing called the Internet. DARPA scientists are remaking the world, but what is their secret for being fast and innovative? In his book, Department of Mad Scientists, Michael Belfiore describes the genius and the gadgetry that pervades this mysterious agency. He begins with Revolutionizing Prosthetics, a program begun by Colonel Jeffrey Ling. Colonel Ling was a trauma doctor, still he's a trauma doctor, active duty uh, army doctor, who served in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and treated many amputees, civilians as well as soldiers. He wanted to do something to help these folks when they got back home and also to help people in these countries. So he created this project, Revolutionizing Prosthetics. Now, part of the, the goal is to create a system that not only as much as possible replaces a natural arm, but actually might be affordable enough for you to actually purchase it or for your insurance company to do it. So what is it that the DARPA prosthetic arm that uh, Dr. Ling envisioned and is developing, what is it that it can do? The vision for Colonel Ling's prosthetic arm is an arm that looks, wears, feels, senses, and is controlled like a native human arm, as they call it. So you might not even notice that someone was wearing it if you bumped into them in the supermarket. It would look that natural? That was the goal. And in fact, you could resume all of your normal activities. If you played the piano beforehand, you might be able to play it again. You might be able to tie your shoe again. But these are artificial limbs that they can read human body signals. So it's actually wired into the individual nerves? We have researchers at the University of Pennsylvania figured out how to wire up monkey brains as part of this research. So you can actually go and watch video online. It's quite spooky of these monkeys with their arms strapped down, actually feeding themselves with robotic arms by thinking about moving their natural arms. And that involves electrodes implanted in the brain. So moving on to human use, it's, it's not hard to think about a case where you might not have one of those natural arms. And in the robot, instead of just being sort of free-floating out there, somewhere is actually attached to your body. In your opinion, once we start doing this, hooking ourselves up to these prosthetic arms that actually are now being connected to the human body in a very intimate way, are we crossing the, the line into something of a cyborg scenario? I suppose if you mean um, a sort of a marriage between human and machine, sure. I think that is ultimately where we're heading. Whether we're going to get there in the next 10 or even 20 years is anybody's guess. Because one of the things that's happening with these new prosthetics is it's not just that it's going to replace what DARPA's doing won't just replace the human arm. It actually will be superior to that. It may have strength that the natural arm didn't have. So I'm wondering if we're also trying to improve on the human body. Now, as far as I was told, and every researcher I spoke to about this project was very careful to tell me, we're not trying to improve on human abilities. We're just trying to give someone back a semblance of their natural ability. But my own imagination goes there fairly quickly. And in fact, uh, I was talking to one researcher, an engineer on this project, who had lost his right arm in Iraq. He was sitting at a computer, and I mentioned that the arm they were working on lacked the side-to-side -side motion in the hand, in the wrist, that would allow him to easily use a mouse. And he said, why do I need to use a mouse? Why not just plug my arm right into a computer and directly use the cursor without the intermediary? So there's clearly a suggestion there that we might be able to at least tweak our natural abilities it a little. It sounds like we're redefining, we may need a redefinition of what makes us human. Well, you know that, that DARPA is associated with all this secret activity. I mean, this is what, it, it is an arm of the Pentagon, and indeed, much of it is secret. And in fact, that is the area that the officials would not talk to you about. They would talk to you about only particular projects that were in the public domain. Is that right? Is that why you got access to write this book? That's right. About half of what DARPA does, I was told, is classified. So that would be off limits to me writing a book about DARPA. But the feeling that I got from your book is that while DARPA is part of the military, that's not all they are, and that the public benefits from some of this research. The public benefits tremendously from much of this research. In fact, I've heard statistics that anywhere from you know a third to even maybe half of all of the advances in 
information processing and artificial intelligence and related fields actually came out of DARPA funding. It's a pretty astounding uh, statistic. Um, the Internet's a great example of that. And, and along with that, around that same time in the mid to late 60s, ARPA, as it was then called, or it was still the same organization without the D for defense, worked on interactive computing projects that resulted in things we take for granted today in personal computers. The mouse came out of that, computer mouse. The whole idea of interactive displays where you type something on a keyboard and it shows up immediately on a screen seems obvious to, to us today. But back then, people were feeding punch cards into mainframe computers with no displays. So the question is, why is it that DARPA can do these things? Why can they do it so quickly? DARPA doesn't have its own labs, and that, that's partly why they, they're able to be so nimble. People at DARPA come up with ideas for doing something, and then they go out and find the best lab that's out there that might be capable of pulling that off and go fund either work that's already in progress or work that might be related to what those folks are doing, like MIT or, or somewhere else. So that's one key for success, and I, I think you can... Can you give me an example of how DARPA uses this innovative approach to build something new? A great example is that of that is the series of autonomous vehicle races that DARPA sponsored. The DARPA Grand Challenge. Yeah, it started out as the Grand Challenge, ended up, there's three races, both called, two of them called Grand Challenge, and the final one was called the Urban Challenge, because the first two were just about driving autonomously across a, a big desert. Then DARPA said, well, let's get really crazy. Let's have these vehicles drive in city streets, have them follow traffic laws, signaling turns, staying within, within I mean, it sounds outrageous, staying within speed limits, making left turns into oncoming traffic, all these things that we sort of think that only humans can do. Let's, let's have robots do this. So the challenge went out. We had something like 22 teams or 26 teams all going in, to this challenge, and they've got all kinds of major talent working on this project. How do we take a production vehicle, stuff it full of computers and sensors, and have it drive autonomously? And it was a tremendous success. So when you said these cars can drive themselves, I'm not sitting back at home driving this car with a computer. I mean, these cars are really doing it all on their own. There are no humans involved. Absolutely. It's quite spooky. And being there myself, it was amazing, too, how quickly I became used to this. I, at first, it was a little weird and spooky. Like I said, if you look through the windshield, there's no one sitting there. But the steering, steering wheel is moving by itself. There's no one controlling it. And they, they seem to have their own personalities in some way. They somehow um, became imbued with the personalities of their creators. Now, this is a, a great example of sort of the, you know, the two-edged sword of any technology. You know, on the one hand, it can be frightening or spooky. On the other hand, though, think of the tremendous benefits. Of a this, driverless car. Yeah. Um, you know, a driverless car would allow someone with certain disabilities to drive when they wouldn't be able to. A blind person, for example, or, or someone who's got a medical problem that prevents them from driving. Uh, paraplegics, people like this can simply get and wheel themselves into their car and just tell the car where they want to go. And the car will, will know where that location is. Now, one of the things that you say in your book is that these groups have an aversion to failure, which is really interesting, and that managers have limited terms. So they come in and the clock starts ticking right away and they realize, I'm only going to be here for a couple years. I better get going. How do those things work together to produce these incredible technological results? Well, there's an aversion to failure, but there's also the understanding that failure is possible. And that's why this is a DARPA hard project. Now, the people running those programs happen to think they can pull it off. Um, but by any measure, many of these things are, are outrageously ambitious. Uh, you know, a, uh, a mechanical arm that would act just like a human arm. I mean, that's pretty outrageous. But the other the thing that you mentioned about DARPA, that another uh, aspect of it that makes it exciting to work there and certainly exciting to write about is that everyone who goes in there to work as a program manager uh, they all come in with a term limit. Everyone there has printed on their ID badge their expiration date. <laughs> so every, you're in a meeting with a bunch of DARPA folks. You know exactly when each person there is out of there. Four to six years is a typical term. That means when they come in, A, they usually have some burning desire to achieve something in that time. And B, they know that 
if they don't accomplish it by that time, they're not going to have too much to show for themselves because they're not going to be hanging around very long. So, so nothing it, focuses the mind like a deadline. That's right. They're not going to be able to stick around and sort of, you know, embed themselves in this bureaucracy and, and sort of start feathering their own nest there. So they really are just really focused on getting that project done. Is it true that these scientists receive a call, a phone call, the, the quote, the mysterious call to join the club, They <laughs> and then they pack their bags and they go off to DARPA? Is it truly a mysterious call? <laughs> That's the way it was described to me by one of the program managers. You're at that mysterious call, you know. Uh, it happens in different ways. Sometimes people themselves are very motivated to work at DARPA, so they kind of bang the door, you know, trying to get in. Other folks, you know, are buying their own business and may actually be reluctant to go work at DARPA because of this dead-end career path. It happens in a variety of different ways. Michael Belfiore is a science writer, and he's the author of The Department of Mad Scientists. Thanks, Michael, for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. You know, it occurred to me that it should maybe be the Department of Mad Engineers. People have mentioned that, yeah. Mad in computer fact, scientists or something. But I mean, I mean it in the best possible way. I mean, I think you you do have to have a certain, uh, for lack of a better word, madness to go against the grain of conventional thinking and think that something most people think is impossible can, in fact, be done. Human augmentation throughout history. The future. Well, Doc, uh, just implant two chips today? You know, you can do them yourself now at the booths in the mall. Yeah, but I'm old-fashioned. Okay. Right, this one for controlling empathetic response to others goes into the amygdala. Well, that will make life simpler. And the chip for conjugation of French verbs goes into the area for language processing of the brain, Broca's area. Well, if it weren't Broca, you wouldn't have to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Our latest chip for being a Sudoku master, perhaps? Uh, no, thanks. Don't want to overdo it. After all, gotta be me. Coming up, we travel to space with writer Mary Roach, but not before engineering some schemes to deal with nature's calls, because it's a long flight. But don't worry, we've got you made on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. In space, no one can hear you scream, Where's the restroom? Because there is no loo, no water closet, no public convenience or private lavatory once you leave Earth. Are you sure you've gone, Timmy? It's six months before we get to Mars. You're weightless in orbit, and gravity's key to the functioning of earthbound toilets. We've been talking in the show about the future integration of humans and machines, and it may be that we're inventing our successors. But as long as we have, and are, carbon-based life forms, we have to deal with their, and our, messy metabolic processes. Okay, it may not be quite the same engineering challenge as wiring brain cells into a computer chip, but three human bodies in a sealed capsule, no shower, no toilet, no escape, scant room freshener, well, it's a unique engineering challenge, to say the least. But writer Mary Roach is prepared to say more than the least, much more, all detailed in her book, Packing for Mars. Well, let's go straight to the top to the most disgusting. Okay. okay. I have a feeling this question appeals You're to on. you. Yeah. <laughs> what is the most disgusting, grossest engineering challenge that there is to put humans into space? Um, the grossest, well, we got to go back, we got to turn the clocks back a little bit, but first, when, when we were first putting up people up in space, we're talking about capsules, very small space, uh, no toilet, 
you know, nothing, nothing such so, so elaborate or um, uh, cushy as a toilet or, or, or a space that you could go to um, void. So we're, we're, this was a situation where you're essentially using a bag. All right, not only that, but you are, um, because you don't have gravity, you don't have what the waste control people, waste management people call good separation. You don't have, because, the, you know, your material, to use their euphemism, it comes out and it just kind of hovers. It doesn't drop away into a toilet like it would on Earth. So you are talking about having to, you yourself are providing the separation. These, uh, the Apollo astronauts, Gemini astronauts really just like had to, uh, and, and you're sitting on, essentially on a love seat with another guy. You're, you're cramped. And it's the size of the interior of a sports car. And so it's, it was this bizarre sort of almost comical intimacy. I talked to Jim Lovell about um, Gemini 7 when, when he was up there with, you saying, I said, you know, did you, how do you, he said, he said, you know, you get, you get to know someone really well, really fast. And at a certain point, you don't even bother to turn away. And when I was really, when I was really feeling sort of annoyed with Frank, I'd go, because they had to mush germicide into the material, you know, because you didn't want, you know, the bacteria growing because the bag would burst. These bags are attached to, to you. Um, and then you do what you need to do as, as a yeah, there was adhesive. Human. There is adhesive. So it, it looks like a clear plastic baggie like the size of a large sandwich bag and it had the adhesive so you would stick it to your rear end and the adhesive apparently never stuck very well it pulled hairs it didn't the curvature was wrong so there are all kinds of problems and as one nasa higher up who after hearing feedback from the astronauts said we have to do better <laughs> now so then it's all processed on on board ship Right now, that I would assume that that technology has come quite a quite a way since then. But of course, oh, then yes. we don't have people in space except the International Space Station, like we did well, with now, the Moon Program. Now there are toilets. Yes, now there are toilets. And here again, normally you'd have gravity, which is bringing the material mm-hmm. uh, down into the you know dropping into the water where it's flushed away. Well, you don't have water to waste up there for one thing. You don't have gravity, so you're using airflow. So it's it's, it's sort of like a shop vac. It works like a shop vac. The air it drags the material away from the body. Now, how about this idea of recycling some of this matter, at least the liquid matter, the yes. urine? Is that something that they're they're doing? Yes, they're yeah. You would particularly for a Mars mission. You're talking. You would you know you would want to get as close to you know 100 percent sort of closed loop recycling. And uh, on ISS there is a there is a urine recycling wi- rig that uh, does a pretty good job. I've heard. I wasn't at this, but the um, Johnson Space Center had a press conference where they had journalists come and had them sort of try to tell the difference between purified urine and tap water and apparently it was pretty tough to do. I uh, tried a sort of a very basic version of uh, sort of a survival kit that you can get where it uses um, osmotic pressure to remove the salt and uh, activated charcoal to remove the kind of the smelly and distasteful parts of it and uh, um, I went down to the NASA Ames cafeteria and had um, a meal with the guy who had worked on this rig, and we both, as beverages, had glasses of urine. And it's really a psychological challenge more than anything. It's, it's, it, it, the technology is there to be doing, as they say, toilet to tap right now. Uh, and most people just have a, a sort of psychological objection. But the but astronauts, you know, they're, they're just sort of can-do. People are like, drink my sweat and urine. No, no big deal. Drink his threat in urine, I can do it. Because you know? what they're doing is such an right. incredible physical challenge. Yeah, it's kind of worth it for the prize at the bottom of the box. Now, one of the concerns in any closed environment for anyone who's been in, let's say, an elevator or anything, is smell. Because mm-hmm. you have a very, airplane is a good right. example. You have this, this air that's being circulated along with all the odors yes. um, that are being circulated. Is, is that a problem? Is that ever commented on by, by astronauts? Oh, ab- absolutely, yeah. They're... Um, there was a whole mission, Gemini 7. That was the first time we'd been in space for, for two weeks. It was a, a longer mission than we'd ever attempted. And one of the, it was, a, it was um, you're getting ready for a moonshot. It was getting ready for Apollo. And the, one of the things that they were looking at in Gemini 7 was what happens to, two, what happens to people if they don't bathe while wearing a spacesuit for two weeks in a space so small you can't even stretch your legs out. And before they even got to Gemini, there was a space cabin simulator at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and they brought students and they put them in you know, all these different situations to turn the heat up to 92 degrees. Their, their underwear literally decomposed. Um, because what happens, uh, your, 
your clothing is very good at absorbing oils and crud. So the, the so you act, your skin, the level of oiliness stays fairly constant for a while until your um, your your long johns, your underwear, are completely saturated, and then it starts to build up on the skin. So they were studying all of this because they were gonna. The thought was that both Lovell and Borman would wear their suits nonstop, 24/7 for two weeks, and. Um, would that even be possible? Would it even, would it be, psychologically, could they deal with it? So they had this whole simulator, and they, it, it was this fascinating era of like sort of ex, extremes of human tolerance. And, and yes, it does, to answer your question, you do get very, uh, it, does, it does stink, yes. There are smells that are produced. And now I understand you've combed through so many transcripts, the actual transcripts between yeah. um, mission control and the astronauts. This comes up, this isn't what's aired when we do the retrospectives. No, it's, no, it's <laughs> of not. Apollo. No, you this don't, you don't have the moment where the, the flight surgeon comes on and says to Commander Borman, Frank, are you having any dandruff problems up there? And Frank Borman was, uh, you could tell <laughs> that he felt like this was sort of compromising the overall manliness of the mission, that this guy would come on and say, are you using the lotion? How is the lotion helping? Like these two guys like orbiting the earth talking about skin care and it really bugged, you could tell, you bugged Frank Borman. <laughs> See, would. one day they might start doing product placement though. If they're using a particular yes. kind of lotion, then they could make that little pitch right there. Yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. Well, the point is, is that the body, a lot is happening with the body. And now you're reminding me just how many things go on with the body um, that all have to be managed up there in, right. in space. Um, now, one of them is also um, nausea. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would mm-hmm. assume, and actually people getting sick, either yes, from right. motion sickness or or from illness. Yeah. Um, are, are those treated separately? Are given well, motion, separate Yeah. Well, well, motion sickness is a, there's a tremendous amount of research that's been done. National Space Biomedical Research Institute does a lot of work on space motion sickness because it is, you know, it's, um, it's a really expensive sick day when somebody is out of commission on a mission on a mm-hmm. space mission. So they do, they do what they can to mitigate it. But the, the, the problem with drugs, if you give someone drugs, you can control space motion sickness with like scopolamine, the patch that you have. But then you're just delaying adaptation because mm-hmm. what's going on is that the, 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 the inner ear, there's, is, there's little calcifications that, flo- that, that don't normally float are now floating around and pinging off the walls of the inner ear and, and your brain doesn't know what to do with that information, responds by making you nauseous. If you let it go a few days your brain reinterprets the signals and you start to feel better so they kind of just have to muscle through a couple of days of feeling crummy now is it during a liftoff is it is it travel no. to the moon is it is it while you're in orbit it's, it's zero g it's it's the it's the fact that you are floating and those little little bones in your inner ear are now floating and so they they're normally resting on the bottom of your inner ear and then so when you move your head suddenly back and forth they're they're pinging around in a way that they wouldn't here on Earth with gravity, and, you're, and that just really does a number on, it's this sensory conflict, like your eyes are saying one thing and your inner ear is saying something else, and the, what your body does in response is makes you f- nauseous. And do they get sick? They do get sick, yes, they get, they get, And yeah. how do you deal with that? What do you, well, what you, does one do? Well, uh, you pretty much just throw up into a bag like you do here. You, you throw up, and of course, of course if you uh, miss, it's uh, a, a trickier cleanup than it would be here. Um, well, this would be literally throwing up. The throwing up and down. My, down. Ch- my chapter is called Throwing Up and Down. <laughs> <laughs> Something else that occurs to me that you would have to deal with on very long trips, and it doesn't have to do with body fluids and so forth, but is the mental health. Mm-hmm. I don't right. know. How, uh, okay. Is the mental health of the astronauts, because you're with these people for a really, really long. It's like the, the, el- the mother of all elevator rides right <laughs> exactly you have to like these people yes um, and what happens if you don't or they get on your nerves and right. you're starting to want to take I don't know it out sure um, each other um, yeah space psychiatry is is kind of an interesting field it, it is um, they, they call it the isolation and confinement so you're isolated with these people, these five or six people, and there isn't any way to slam the door and go for a drive. You know, you're soaking in it. The other thing that's going on with space, because I asked um, I asked Captain Lovell about that and with Gemini 7, because Frank Borman can be a little crusty, and I said, how did you cope with that? Didn't you just want to kill him? And he said, he said, well, you're dependent on these, the other guy, your, your crewmates for survival, so you tend to not take it out 
on your crewmates. What happens is something that they call displacement, which is you take it out on mission control. You get very, very grumpy. In Gemini 7, for example, Lovell, uh, I, it seemed to me he was, his focus, he, he was displacing onto the nutritionist because he'd eat the food. And like at one point he had this chicken that was supposed to come out of a tube and it was stuck and he said he couldn't even, you know, chicken and he gave the serial number. It, it won't even come out of the tube. And then like a few minutes go by and he goes, further note to Dr. Chance, chicken now all over window at this time at $300 a meal. I think you can do better. You know, it was just, he was, he was displacing or I, I felt that he was. Um, and the other thing that goes on is something they call irrational antagonism, which is the very things that you liked in a person when you first met them. If you, if you spend enough time in a, in a small enough space those things will begin to drive you crazy. Um, and and you, you get frustrated because space is a very un... It's an ungiving, frustrating environment. You have very little control over your circumstances. And when you're frustrated, it turns into anger. And anger wants an outlet. And if there's no one to put it on, you turn it inward and then it becomes depression. And depression on long-term space flights was, um, has been a significant problem. There's some, some of the Mir astronauts were pretty open about it in their memoirs. Well, finally... Um Sex and space, it's the question that people have on their minds. <laughs> right. um, are there any uh, rules against it? And um, is it even possible to have sex in space? There, there is a um, crew conduct code. There's a couple of things that NASA has that don't specifically forbid it, but there's one that says you don't want to give the appearance of impropriety, and I think that would probably fall under that, um, that rule. And there's also you're not supposed to show preferential treatment. So if... You know, if, if the commander, say, was having sex with someone on the crew, they could, you know, they could be like showing preferential treatment. So there are, there are things written down, but not really sort of spelled out. Unless he agrees just to have sex with everyone. The, yes, right, exactly. Then exactly. Be... Then everything would be fine. As long as everybody's involved, nobody's left out. <laughs> um, but as to whether it would work, um, I talked to marine, some marine biologists who study um, animals that mate while floating in water. And this, the short answer here is that gravity is your friend when it comes to intercourse. You know, you want something to push against. And you see that there are, um, like, uh, earless seals tend to go down to the bottom uh, to, to have something to push against because otherwise you kind of bounce apart but that's not the only way to have sex and as one astronaut put it uh, when I uh, one of the few who was sort of well retired astronauts will talk to you about this he said uh, he said he said that's not a big deal and he said you would do what what you know two young people do just starting out you use your imagination trial and error and if all else fails a roll of duct tape <laughs> Mary Roach thank you very much <laughs> thanks so much if you're squeamish, then you may have trouble with the unflinching details in Mary Roach's book about getting away from almost everything. Packing for Mars, The Curious Science of Life in the Void. You know, Seth, now we do have in the studio an actual astronaut, Tom Jones. Now, you heard the interview with Mary Roach, Tom, and the description that she gave of life and body fluids in space. Does that ring true? It's certainly a part of everyday life at the space station or on the space shuttle, but it's not overly dramatic. It's routine and almost not a part of your consciousness each day. You don't wake up in space each morning and think, wow, I'm in space and how do I cope with it? You wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to have breakfast and put on my clothes and go to work. And all of the normal bathroom chores are just part of what you have to get through for the day. You were on the space shuttle that took you up to the International Space Station. How long was that shuttle ride? Eight and a half minutes to get to orbit, and then we take about a day and a half to get to the space station. And that's just to allow the two vehicles to phase and do a rendezvous in a comfortable kind of pace. It's a, a really dramatic eight and a half minute ride to orbit, and I think um, everybody looks forward to that with some kind of uh, anticipation and maybe a little bit of, uh, of uh, anxiety. But professionally, you are ready for that physical challenge and for the mental challenge. So how long would you spend in the space station? A couple of days? In my mission, we uh, spent a typical amount of time, which is about a week or 10 days docked there. It was a week in our case. Well, the reason I ask is that Mary's book was Packing for Mars. And if we go to Mars, that might be a trip of six months. And so I sort of wonder, I mean, you say taking care of basic biology on the space station is no big deal. But if you had to do it for six months... It would be, again, uh, like the space station experience where you have to now... You can't bring the waste home on a short shuttle trip. You can do that. On the space station, some of it's recycled, as she mentioned, the urine. Uh, solid waste still gets thrown away. And I think when we take it to Mars or to a long asteroid trip, there'll be more closed-loop recycling where that waste material gets 
cycled biologically through a garden, for example, or a greenhouse, or it's processed chemically with electricity and machines to actually extract the reusable parts. And you want to, of course, throw away the minimum amount possible because every pound of stuff that you throw away means tens of pounds of rocket fuel to uh, propel that stuff out there, then you throw it away. So, Tom, when you're up there above Earth, you say that your mind's on other things, not basic biology and so forth. What are some of the things that you're thinking about when you're on the International Space Station? In my particular case, my crew of five was working with the three astronauts on board, and we had the very specific job of delivering a bus-sized laboratory from the shuttle, hoisting it out on the robot arm and bolting it to the station and then plugging in all the utility lines to make this thing come alive, coolant, data cables from the computers, electrical power from the solar panels, and then activating this uh, $1.4 billion facility. So when you're up there, do you have a moment to look out the window? And if you do, I mean, you have a view of Earth that most of us will never have. So can you describe what it's like? It's incomparable. And I wouldn't go to space if I wasn't going to be allowed to look out the window. Everybody should look forward to this experience. Uh, The Earth is a mesmerizing uh, planet that takes up half the sky. Uh, Every time you look out the window, there's a different scene. Even if you come over the same spot on the globe, the weather's changed, the lighting is different. So it's impossible to peel your eyes away from that. Uh, If you've got too much free time, I think you would be so addicted that you would never get any work done. Is there any particular moment that really stays in your mind? I write in my book, Skywalking, about probably the the most rewarding and spiritual experience of the entire four missions I was up there. It was uh, near the end of my last spacewalk on the space station. I had a couple of minutes. We got ahead of the schedule. So I allowed myself the luxury of just pivoting around the front end of the space station with one arm on a handrail and scanning the horizon a thousand miles out, up above black space, these golden wings of the solar panels, down below the beautiful azure blue of the ocean, past my boots 200 miles down to the ocean surface. And I felt like I was on the tip of a, the, the bow of a giant windjammer that was just cruising silently around the planet. And the beauty of the, the blue and white earth below and this black sky in contrast just uh, made tears come to my eyes with the beauty of the scene and the feeling of humility you get when you look at how small you are compared to that earth and that universe out there. It's a very humbling experience and yet one you feel very privileged by. Tom Jones is a space consultant, astronaut, and veteran of four space shuttle flights. Well, Seth, maybe there is something to being and remaining human after all. Well, it's true, Molly. I don't know that the machines would appreciate the aesthetics of that view from space. And that's it for our show. Thanks to the almost entirely human Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. And to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe means considering the possibility that it won't be carbon-based. I've spotted it. I've spotted it. It's Jupiter's moon, Bellissima! Galileo, per favore, take that thing outside. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.